electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. To remember, Apple CEO Tim Cook and U.S. President Donald Trump in Texas this week, and it's a high-stakes photo op. They're at the factory in Austin, Texas, where Apple's Mac Pro is going to be assembled. Cook, no doubt, wants to make it hard for the president to put tariffs on Mac Pro components. Cook's already said that unless they continue to be exempt from those tariffs, he's going to have to move Mac Pro manufacturing completely to China. The president, meanwhile, wants to push Apple and U.S. CEOs more broadly to manufacture here instead of in China. But I think this whole scene is a little bit of a sham, and I'll tell you why. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Ford from CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. Joining me this week, Ina Freed, chief tech correspondent at Axios. We've got more than Trump and Cook to talk about. We've got Disney Plus hacking, or is it really hacking? Microsoft teaming up on Slack and more. Ina, great to have you. Always good to be here, John. Now, you and I go way back. We used to, we used to sit together at Macworld for the keynotes and whatnot. So I know you know Tim Cook. You know Apple. I mean, part of this, I know the president this morning was, was quoted saying, we showed him on air and CNBC talking about this being new manufacturing. This isn't really new manufacturing. They've been making a version of the Mac Pro there for a long time. Apple had just said, hey, with these tariffs, we're going to have to move production to China. But they got an exemption. Now they can still do it in the U.S. So, I mean, the narrative isn't quite what it might appear, right? Well, it is keeping manufacturing here. I mean, you're right. They did manufacture the last generation here. But this is an all-new computer, and they certainly had a choice to make of whether they would keep it here. From what I hear, they always wanted to keep it here, but it's expensive to do manufacturing in the U.S., and I don't think they would do it. I don't think they could do it in some ways if they had to both pay the higher manufacturing costs and pay tariffs on the components. I think Apple is making a legitimate claim here. Granted, this is a very expensive computer to begin with, but this is hugely symbolic for both Apple and the president because this is one of the few electronics that's made here. They don't make computers here. Mm -hmm. In general, nobody makes computers in the US. This is one very expensive computer for professionals where the margins are high enough that they can afford a higher labor cost. And so it's a a $6,000 computer. Yeah, and so that gives them the the luxury, if you will, of making it here. But this is important, again, for both Apple and the president. They both want to be able to say, look, there's manufacturing here. Mm -hmm. And so it would not be in either of their interests uh, to have this forced to go overseas. But I I think that this conversation on high-tech manufacturing tends to get framed wrong. Where, you know, you hear the president say, oh, well, you know, they should be making iPhones here. I, I don't think, I don't think we want iPhones made here necessarily. If they were made here, if one day if they are made here, they're going to be made almost completely by robots. Very few people are going to be involved. Building, assembling iPhones, that's not a good job. Like, we, we, we've seen the stories about this being done. That's not, it's not like even assembling cars. It's not, it's not glamorous, right? 
It's not glamorous. I mean, I think above and beyond the question of whether we want it or whether we wish they were made here, it's not realistic. I mean, you need a country with a huge, massive uh, manufacturing employee base, which we don't have. Um, let alone the cost of labor, which would obviously be prohibitive. Um, but, but to your point, these aren't the sorts of jobs we should be going after. There is some manufacturing that we could be pushing for in the U.S. Um, they don't get talked a lot, but semiconductors, there are a significant number of chips that yeah. are still made in the U.S. That's an area Intel's we could see got Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In Oregon, uh, Arizona, or is it New Mexico? Um, and, and, and those are good jobs. They are. I mean, again, you're seeing increased automation. It's not like a person is, you know, stamping out chips. Um, <laughs> but they are, they are good jobs, and they are um, critical for things like national security. We're actually seeing a push to do more manufacturing here. So I think if there was a little more focus on what's realistic mm -hmm. versus what looks good, I think the whole industry would be in better shape, as well as, you know, it would long-term benefit the politicians as and well. And meanwhile, the, the, the irony to me and part of this is that while there's talk, political talk, about wanting the manufacturing jobs that are in China, China wants the intellectual property jobs that are here, right? I, it's, it's designed by Apple in California. That's the jobs that they want in China. They don't, they don't necessarily want to be making the iPhones. I mean, sure, it's fine. It's fine right now for them at this point. But what they're really coveting is the jobs that, that Apple has in Silicon Valley, that Google has in Silicon Valley, Microsoft, et cetera, up in Seattle, Amazon. Those are the jobs that China wants. Well, in particular, they want the industries that will allow them to be independent from the U.S. I mean, one of the interesting things about the current U.S.-China um, trade tie, uh, challenges is the fact that both countries wish they were independent and had an independent tech sector from the other, but mm -hmm. both are right now really dependent. Um, the challenge for the U.S. is it's, uh, you know, it's realistic to manufacture products elsewhere, um, but what China's looking to do is you know, not be dependent on U.S. software, U.S. chips, things that are of much more high value. And so longer term, you have to be looking at you know, what is the cost to the U.S. if China is able to go truly independent? Um, whether or not that's forestallable is not entirely clear. I mean, it may be that China just has the resources eventually to develop an ecosystem. But I think the tariffs are actually accelerating that. They're pushing China to say, you know, we can't depend on the U.S. Uh, yeah. Companies like Huawei are taking a hit right now because they have to potentially drop Google for their software. But it's actually accelerating Huawei and others to push for that independence. And speaking of independence, Tim Cook himself has an interesting dance to do because he, he's been photographed in China with President Xi. He's, he's being photographed today, uh, you know, this week with President Trump uh, in Texas. He doesn't necessarily want to be too closely associated with either one of them. Uh, at the same time, you know, this week, he, he was at Dreamforce with Mark Benioff talking about the ways in which he disagrees with this administration's policies. For example, when it comes to immigration, uh, when it comes to dreamers, he said he wants all the dreamers to have a path to citizenship, mentioned that several hundred work for Apple, that he's spoken with them individually. He's trying to be team Apple and not necessarily get lumped in too much with ideology in any of the countries where they operate, right? And I think he's done a remarkable job. I mean, he's one of the few people who can, uh, who both uh, the leader of China and President Trump are willing to be photographed with, are happy to be seen <laughs> with. Um, you know, so far they've avoided alienating customers 
mostly in both countries. Um, you know, I think Apple has played this game well. We did an article on how, how well Oracle has done in DC, but I think if you look at the dance that Apple has had to do, mm. as you say, not getting too close, but not alienating either government. It desperately wants customers in China. It's one of the few US tech companies that actually sells a lot, particularly to consumers in China. You just don't see that. Um, from other companies. A lot of companies either have decided not to do business there or just aren't successful there. Um, mm. Apple is and would like to be even more successful. At the same time, obviously, Apple wants things from this administration. They want tariff exemptions. Uh, they would like things on the social political front that they're not getting, um, but they have some things that are business critical. And Tim Cook has done this dance uh, well from the standpoint of not alienating either government. There's a certain chattering class in tech that likes to talk about what Steve Jobs did that Tim Cook can't do. I'm just going to put this out there. Tim Cook can do this diplomacy thing. Steve Jobs couldn't do it. He didn't have a poker face like Tim Cook. I mean, sure, he was charming. Uh, he could be diplomatic you know, in stretches when it suited Apple. But I cannot see him navigating these politics as well as Tim Cook has, while still waving that Apple cultural banner and, and kind of design and ethos banner, uh, th that's something Tim Cook can do uniquely. Yeah, I mean, they have really different sets of skills, and there are a lot of Steve Jobs skills that I think the company is still trying to figure out where it's going to get that you know, that true taste for products, that real creativity. He was also a, a brutally tough negotiator. Now, Tim Cook is a good negotiator. He built his uh, business and his career on being the supply chain guy uh, for Apple. But, um, you know, Steve Jobs was able to, uh, you know, crush an industry while making them at least publicly have to smile, uh, see the music and film industries. So I think there are elements of Steve Jobs' skill set that, you know, any company uh, is still struggling to have, including Apple. Um, but there are definitely skills that Tim Cook possesses, and I think we've seen them truly on display, as you point out, in a situation that would be tough for most other leaders, including <laughs> probably Steve Jobs. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, Apple was not this behemoth, the, the most valuable con uh, company uh, on the planet for, for the time when Steve Jobs was running it, though. I mean, I, I remember when he celebrated them passing Dell's market cap. My goodness, um, what he would think about this. All right, time to get those digits. Siri's got a few numbers that caught my eye this week. Siri, what is up first? $3. $3. That is how much some Disney Plus accounts were being sold for on the dark web after thousands of users were, well, were they hacked just after launch? You know, it wasn't really clear to me exactly how these usernames and passwords ended up on the dark web. Disney said, hey, we weren't hacked. Our, our systems, uh, th their integrity was not compromised. Th there's some speculation out there that this was just what's called credential stuffing. Uh, people had grabbed emails, passwords from other hacks they'd been floating around, and then they just, hey, gave it a try, threw them at Disney+. Plus. A lot of people reuse their passwords or just a slight variation, and they were able to, to, to hack into a bunch of these. What do you think? Is this, is this a black eye for Disney, or is this just another reminder? Hey, use some unique passwords. Get yourself Dashlane or LastPass or some kind of a password locker. Come on. Take it serious, folks. 
Yeah, you know, I have to say this one surprised me. I knew that we all reuse our passwords. I've uh, been known to be guilty of it. Um, but I didn't realize people, as soon as a new service come out, try those usernames and passwords that have leaked in past hacks. That does appear to be what happened this time. So Disney's saying, our systems weren't compromised. There's just that many bad passwords out there. Um, but I really do think it's a wake-up call. Um, you know, what's interesting is a lot of people are going, why don't they, why don't they be tougher? Why don't they have two-factor authentication? Mm -hmm. um, and one of my colleagues pointed out, you know, this is actually where you want the least sort of secure thing when you're talking about a streaming service. This is where, in general, both the industry and especially consumers say, I want to be able to share that password with my family. And in general, the streaming services have been more permissive than, for example, if you had corporate security, you know, or something like Adobe subscription service that's very right. expensive. They have very strict rules. You can use it on one computer and one laptop and very tight. This is the kind of thing where you don't want that level of security, but it is a reminder. Boy, that password thing is still a mess. Um, and you really got a sense of just how bad the problem is when on day one, on day two, passwords are for sale on the dark web. Yeah, Before you gotta, people, many people have even created their account. You haven't even had a chance to watch Bambi yet. Uh, you know. <laughs> totally. Haven't had a chance to check out Baby Yoda. You gotta, I mean, I don't want to ruin it for everybody, but, but you got to check it, you know. Mandalorian. Spoil it, please don't. No. Um, I don't think that's very much of a spoiler, but love me some Baby Yoda. Uh, all right, Siri, let, let's get that second digit. 20 million. 20 million. That is how many daily active users Microsoft Teams reported having compared to Slack's 12 million. Uh, Ina, I, I know you have covered Microsoft closely for a long time. I was just uh, in the past month or two, sitting down with Microsoft here in New York, going deep on Teams, trying to understand really what it looks like, how they're integrating it, how they're looking to build this collaboration, enterprise collaboration into Teams. I mean, Slack has got their work cut out for them because from what I can see, Microsoft is on its game in this era of, of enterprise collaboration. Well, it's taken them a really long time. I mean, Microsoft sure. has had several products going after Slack. They bought a company called Yammer. They had SharePoint yeah. in this space and tried to make it a Slack competitor. But it does seem, you know, third time's often the charm for Microsoft. It does seem like this time they, they have a, a better competitor and they're pushing it hard. I mean, I think the thing that's most worrisome to uh, if you're Slack is the fact that, you know, Microsoft has a ton of Office customers. They can mm -hmm. essentially give it to them um, so, you know, Slack has to make its money from Slack because that's its only product. Whereas Microsoft, at least in the short term, um, if they can make Office better by having a Slack-like thing in there, um, I think there are some caveats that are worth pointing out in the numbers. So um, it is noteworthy that Microsoft first tied and now has surpassed the number of daily active users that um, Slack has. Um, but if, you know, Slack's response, and I think it still bears a lot of truth, is the fact that there's not a lot of active use of Teams. When you compare companies that are right. heavy Slack users, you know, people are on this hours and hours a day. Most of Teams users are not yet. Um, again, I think if you're Slack, you're worried. I think Microsoft's uh, doing a good job of touting the one metric that it's really gaining in terms of 
total it, users. It but hits it, Slack stock yeah. for sure. Uh, and normally in the enterprise, you, you end up eventually with this argument uh, baked in versus best of breed. And, and, and Slack has got to make the argument, yeah, Microsoft Teams is going to be baked in to Office, to 365, you get it as part of this cloud offering, but hey, we're best of breed. If, if you don't want to be locked into Microsoft, if you want to collaborate not only within your organization, but now increasingly Slack is talking about uh, having the capability to collaborate with your partners with a different company, well, then, you know, if they don't use Microsoft, why not, you know, maybe they don't use Microsoft, why not uh, have Slack be that means of efficient communication? It's a long fight. It is a long fight, and they each have some powerful uh, strategic weapons, if you will, at their disposal. Um, Slack certainly has the fact that it's not tied to Microsoft. It also integrates with a ton of other things. So most of the rest of your business software works with Slack. Um, whereas again, Microsoft brings the, you're already using Office, we'll basically give it to you for now. That's a powerful wallet argument. So I do think this is, Definitely a fight to keep an eye on. Do you think we end up with another major enterprise consolidation period? I mean, I remember when, when Larry Ellison kicked it off, going hostile after PeopleSoft, what was it, 15 right. years ago. That was big. I don't think we've had a period quite like that in the cloud era, where, you know, maybe it's Amazon, maybe it's Microsoft, maybe it's Google, or just really going out there trying to roll up the strongest names whether it's in SaaS, maybe it's behind the, uh, the scenes in, in storage, the likes of a snowflake, just really getting aggressive out there. You think it's going to happen? It's possible. I mean, I think there was a unique set of circumstances. You know, Oracle had this very powerful database that was widely used. I think they foresaw a little bit, you know, a coming era where maybe that database wouldn't be as big. And they really were like, how can we gigantically grow this company through acquisition? I think what's interesting now is, the key players are already so big. I don't know how long before people would be like, wait, you know, and you are seeing acquisitions. Google made one this week. Microsoft's been buying companies. Uh, Amazon certainly has the ability to. Even though people are closely watching big tech, there's talk about antitrust stuff. In enterprise, there's a little more room for acquisition. But I think any of those three would have a tough time uh, buying really large companies, uh, so, you know, Salesforce, for example. Yeah, I just wanted to go from consumer way deep into enterprise for a moment because you got you got all the bases covered. I, I love that you can do that, Ina. All right, uh, let's get the third and final, I believe, digit. Siri. Twenty-two percent. Twenty-two percent. Of the $730 billion the National Retail Federation predicts will be spent this holiday season, only 22% of that is going to be done online. And yet, when it comes to growth, a lot of that is going to happen digitally. Adobe, whose report I like to look at pretty closely, uh, is really looking at, uh, let's see, 4% overall growth this holiday season. But online, uh, you're going to see a lot more growth than that. I believe uh, U.S. online sales up 14.1% Adobe's predicting. You know, uh, mobile has become a big part of the holiday season story. Any expectations for how this year might be different? Growth overall, Adobe and the NRF are saying, but more growth, relatively speaking, in digital. 
Definitely. I mean, I think more digital. I think the mobile one is fascinating. You know, remember there was a long time where you might browse on your phone, but you would never buy because it was so much harder. You had to type in your address. Um, and most of those problems have been solved. And sometimes with things like Apple Pay and stuff, it's actually quicker to buy things on the phone. Um, yeah. Amazon has a really great experience buying on the phone. So I think that's an interesting shift too, not just how much happens digital versus in traditional retail, but also how much happens mobile versus desktop. Um, and when you think about it, that's important for a couple reasons. It's not just substitution of time I would have spent, but it opens up every time you're stuck in line is now an impulse buying opportunity. I mean, I remember <laughs> do you impulse do buy used to mean whatever they stuck at the checkout. I do sometimes, you know, I find myself, you know, in line at Target, a physical retailer, uh, looking up other things, uh, not so much comparison shopping, occasionally doing that. You but stand also in line just at Target? That's so... That's so hardcore, quaint? like real, real, yeah, quaint. I like that. Yeah. I feel weird when I stand in line at a store now. Like, what's going on? Where did I go wrong? Why am I standing here? I mean, I do think we're gonna see a big shift also in, in um, brick and mortar retail. You know, this automated checkout stuff is super interesting. Um, you know, more digital assortment. Like if, if you want this thing, buy it here. But if you want it in 27 other colors, just click here. I think there is an opportunity, to be honest, any of the brick and mortar retail that wants to survive is gonna really have to come up with a compelling in-store experience. I think the opportunity is there, um, but I think it's gonna have to look a lot different than uh, traditional retail has looked over the years. You know, back, back to the checkout lane. You know what's the new checkout lane? That, that, that period of time when you're on the couch right after eating Thanksgiving turkey. That's the new check. Oh, that's it's the a new great impulse time. buy. Because the deals, the Black Friday deals are already out there, and they just, you know, you're on your phone, they're, they're trying to get you, and you're a little groggy, it, you know, your defenses are it's down. It's a good time. And if one yeah. thing could go away in my book, it would be Cyber Monday. Like, there was a time where that made sense, where yeah, it was when like, nobody oh, had this is my first time in front of a computer. Yeah, that time is so, so like, oh, long gone. I need gone. the fast connection to get on Amazon. Why, why is Cyber Monday even a thing anymore? I agree, um, and I think to your point, it's being re replaced. I think you're seeing deals that are going on online ahead of Thanksgiving, ahead of Black Friday. I think Black Friday, for a lot of reasons, will remain a big deal, whether it's both online and in physical retail, but man, Cyber Monday couldn't go away fast enough in my book. <laughs> All right, uh, well, everything can't be perfect, so now it's time for Hard Knocks, the period where, uh, in our show, where we look at, uh, at things that perhaps could be better. Somebody taking a swipe at somebody else, somebody not quite making things work the way they should. First up, Google Stadia. First reviews of Google's cloud gaming service are out. And, ouch, not all great. Washington Post in particular talking about uh, when you're on a phone, hey, looks pretty good, but sometimes on a PC, even a broadband connection, if you're trying to do a fast-paced game, the frame rates don't keep up. Sometimes you get stuttering. You know, this is exactly what you don't want with streaming gaming, right? It is. I mean, this is the problem that I think most people foresaw is the fact that, you know, look, our broadband connections at home aren't always that great. I know I struggle to get Wi-Fi in the bedroom just to write my newsletter at night. I can't imagine trying to do streaming gaming from in there. Um, I do think this is a bet by Google on the future. 
Um, this is really early. It's early adopter. I think this is a play at where gaming will be a couple years from now. Mm. Um, I don't think this is so much about what they can deliver today. But I agree. You know, the first, there's limited games. There's going to be problems. I also saw some points of, is this really, you know, and I think we do have to think about what is the most efficient? What is the most environmental way to deliver things? And is streaming a game to a home really the best way to do it when 90% of the time that could run off of a console in hmm. the bedroom, uh, you know, where everything's happening point. locally. Yeah, I mean, um, that could that But could people are playing benefits. online, people are sharing their streams back online. So realistically, that isn't staying at the home. It's not like people aren't broadcasting to Twitch and Mixer and YouTube. True. So I think this is where things are going. Again, I think this is a long-term bet by Google and probably the right one, whether or not it's ready for prime time today. And it strikes me what Google's really trying to do is break the ecosystem lock that Windows has for certain PC games, certainly that the App Store, Apple's iOS App Store has for mobile games. Those are real points of strength for them. If Google can do for gaming, what it was able to do for productivity with Google Docs, what, what Web 2.0 did for things like mapping, well then, hey, they could, they could leapfrog those competitors, right? Yeah, I was just gonna make the Google Docs comparison that early on, you know, Google Docs wasn't anywhere near as good an experience. You know, it was, people didn't want their documents in the cloud, there was all this stuff. Now, obviously, you know, Google Docs has built up a little bit of an offline capacity, but most of what's happened is that's just a way that people have gotten comfortable doing document creation and editing. So I do think, again, I think this is a bet on the future that looks a little far out, a little not ready for prime time today, but you know, it's going to take years to get there, and I think they're going aggressively, and I think others in the gaming space will go there too. Mm. To your point, it does play to their strengths, and only a couple companies will be able to play in this field. I think you will see companies like Microsoft, maybe Sony, also do this, and I think everyone else will need to partner. They'll have yeah. to use someone else's cloud in order to get their games online. At least defensively they'll have to. I mean, Amazon's in a good position. They've got Twitch, after all. For people watching, yep. they could maybe do uh, a streaming play as well. Well, I'm gonna stick with Google. We're gonna do like a one-two punch uh, when it comes to hard knocks this time. Except this time I'm gonna take the other side. How about Apple marketing chief Phil Schiller taking a shot at Chromebooks, Google's Chromebook, saying kids who use Google's laptop, quote, are not going to succeed. <laughs> You know, you know, Phil, I know Phil. I'm not sure the context of this exactly. Even reading the whole thing, I'm not sure what he meant by not going to succeed. But you and I remember a time when we were talking about technology, you know, PC, laptop market share in schools. We were talking about Apple and Dell. But Google and the Chromebook have really eaten into that big time because it's what schools need. It's simple, you know, kids can get online. That's pretty much all they can do on a Chromebook, it's it's secure, it's easy to connect. I mean, the kids are gonna succeed, aren't they, Ina? I think they are, and I think probably, you know, the most ill-advised part of that is, you know, anytime you bring kids into it, everyone gets their hackles up. Like, you can say, <laughs> I'm not gonna be successful, but if you say, you know, my kid's not gonna be successful, you know, people take that viscerally. I think, you know, he was trying to make the point that 
um, you know, a PC, and in this case a Mac, which is kind of funny, he's making the case for the PC, uh, you know, is more capable and more powerful. And actually Apple's play at the education is also the iPad. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think if he'd made it more eloquently, what he's trying to say is, you know, you can do all the same things that you can do on a Chromebook, but with an iPad or a Mac, you can learn to program, you can do all these things. And obviously there's a good Karnar argument that you can do plenty of those things even on a Chromebook. Um, I think the issue here is you have a fierce battle, it's cost competitive, and I think people forget that one of the best things that Google brings is not just the price, it's the manageability. That's it's the, the fact thing. that you can wipe it, it's secure, it's always updated, and yeah. schools don't have dedicated IT staffs. And so, again, you know, I think it's a tough battle, it's an important strategic one. I think, uh, you know, Phil Schiller wanted to make the point that you can do more with an iPad or a Mac, but again, when you bring the kids into it, you're always gonna you're always gonna have problems. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, even my sixth grader heard about this comment, and uh, he, he was saying, "Well, does this mean does this mean maybe I'm gonna get a MacBook at school instead?" He was kind of looking forward to it. Ooh, but, uh, yeah, that's a yeah. good play. Or, Dad, I want to be successful. Uh, <laughs> you know, I read online I'm not gonna be successful unless I get a high-end Apple laptop. You know what, John? I don't think I'm gonna be successful unless I get a made in the U.S. Mac. Pro, so uh, <laughs> if anyone's looking to do holiday shopping, I need a $6,000 computer. Maybe President uh, so Trump can, can use that line. To be successful, he needs uh, those Mac Pros to continue to be manufactured in the U.S. And Tim Cook can say, hey, for us to be successful, Mr. President, we need a continued tariff exemption. Ina Freed, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for being with us. Great conversation. We, we went Thanks, all man. over the place. We did tariffs. We did consumer, we did enterprise, we did retail. Oh my goodness. Well, we're gonna be off next week so you guys can stand in line at Target and shop on your phones after Turkey. Uh, but we'll be back soon. Until next time, happy Thanksgiving. I'm John Fort from CNBC and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes, leave me a note. Also subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.